0: Welcome to Season 7 of Beyond the Jargon, a conversation with grad students about their research journey here at the University of Victoria from CFUV 101.9 FM. This episode was created on the traditional territory of the Songhees, Esquimalt and West Saanich peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. I am your host, Taiwo Afolabi. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Jargons. Having this great opportunity to be sitting with us, Smith, Smith Oduro Mafo. he's a Ghanaian um, who is doing his um, PhD with the uh, political science department here at the University Victoria. Smith's ongoing uh, PhD research is on the connections uh, between citizen identification systems in Ghana and its connection to national development. Uh, Smith hoped to, um, to know what stakeholders mean when they say that citizen identification projects are necessary for national development, and through that process, he hopes to explore existing development conditions and how that shapes citizen identification project in developing um, countries. uh I'm going to allow Smith to speak more to these and to kind of enlighten us more. What what does our citizen identification means? What does the, what's the connect the connection and the relationship of that to national development and every other thing um, that um, is a research entail. So it's good to have you here today, Smith. Nice to be
1: here, Tayo. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much. When you say citizen identification system, what does that mean?
1: Um, Citizen identification systems is not far from us. We can be very practical about it. Almost everybody in the world holds an ID card these days. In almost every city or every state, you are being asked to give your bi- biometrics. You go somewhere, you are being asked to give your telephone number. Even before you could get a telephone number, you are being asked to show multiple IDs. So, let's think about it this way. Every government in the world wants to be able to distinguish between citizens. There are so many people called John Thompson in Canada, in Victoria. How with the state, how the government know that this John Thompson in Vancouver is different from the John Thompson in Victoria. So governments over the years try to put in place structures, systems, to ensure that they can distinguish between their own citizens. And this is very important because that is how you can tax. And in the very olden days, even in terms of conscription, Going to war. We want to be able to differentiate between the citizen and the stranger so that we can say that this John Doe is a citizen and this John Doe lives here and this John Doe must fight for us. This John Doe is a foreigner and must pay taxes if we want foreigners to pay taxes. So it is very, very practical. Think about your ID cards you hold. Think about your phone numbers and think about all the biometric details that you've been given to the state.
0: Well, interesting. So, uh, uh, what what really drove you to thinking around uh, identification system?
1: Um, I'll first of all say that uh, one book, one particular book, has been uh, very very important, critical to my decision. Uh, that book is seen like a state um, by James Scott. Um, Scott in this book was trying to talk about the evolution of the state, that for the state or any government to be able to perform its functions, then the government must have what he called legibility. Society must be legible. The government must be able to know who is who and who is where. So after reading this book, I felt that this is not only about the ancient state, this is also about the very modern state. And then... As somebody who has been reading a lot in surveillance studies, I realized that when people discussed identification systems, They always thought about it from the perspective of surveillance, that the state wants to spy on you. The state wants to take something from you. The state wants to know what you are talking about. But then when I read about these projects, these identification projects in developing countries, I realized that these governments were talking about something else. They were saying that, no, for us as a state to be effective and to ensure that we have national development, then... We have to be able to distinguish amongst our citizens. We have to be able to know who is who. So, the more I thought about it, the more I felt that there is a gap between surveillance studies and its ideas of identification systems in global south, or what they will say or call developing countries, and then in 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 the global north countries.
0: Interesting. So. Uh Do we say that identification systems are part of surveillance system or how do we bring all of them together if there's any connection between (laughs) both of them? We've
1: we've gotten there pretty fast. Uh, In my work, one of the things I try to do is to very early on say that identification systems are surveillance enabling systems, that surveillance as a word has gotten a bad rap, that anybody who hears the word surveillance feels like no, Somebody is spying on me. But effectively, it's about seeing. And identification systems help us to see. But then again, you don't want people to emphasize identification systems in the context of surveillance so that we lose the value of being able to identify citizens. Uh,
0: interesting. So, um if we're rethinking or looking at the idea of surveillance from the perspective of identification, mm-hmm. aren't surveillance systems essentially established or developed to survey and to check security and you know, to find a way to look and to see who is our enemy and who is not our enemy?
1: Yeah. It's, it's, security is one of the leading reasons for identification systems or surveillance systems. But it is not the only thing. The danger has always been that we tend to emphasize the risk involved in surveillance that somebody especially the word spying and what it entails that somebody is listening into my conversations somebody is invading my privacy but beyond this could surveillance be used for positives right you use the word security and security in one breath can be used as an excuse to abuse people's rights. Oh, we just want to ensure your security. But then, they actually want the information for something else. So, uh, thinking in terms of uh, the, the, the geographical location of
0: your work, Ghana and by extension, other neighboring countries mm-hmm. within that... Uh, West in West Africa, or even within that economic or geopolitical zone, mm-hmm. Uh, how does this help the system? How does the identification system help national development or national growth? And and what do you mean by national growth itself? Yeah,
1: so uh, I would first of all say that one of the things I do in my work is to allow the stakeholders I am studying to give me their own understanding of development. Because my work is not trying to impose a certain conception of development. What I'm just saying is that people are actually using the expression development in the context of these identification projects, but what do they mean when they say development? So that conception really is in the hands of those actors that I'm studying.
0: So when you say stakeholders, who are the stakeholders? Yeah, so
1: the first stakeholder would be the government, or in political science, you would say the state. I mean... To the layman, we have to say that the the state is the same as the government, but in political science, it's not necessarily the same. But think about it this way, that the key stakeholder is the government. And you have um, civil society, and you have private corporations or companies. These normally would be the technology companies that are putting these identification systems together. But in the peculiar case of these countries, It is also external actors, like the World Bank. And they all have influence on these projects and how they manifest.
0: So in in essence, uh, stakeholders are, are both internal, which is within the country, and external, Uh, which is outside the country, is there a way that we consider the citizens as stakeholders? And how do we connect that? Or how does that connect to the idea itself?
1: Yeah, I I would say that the citizens are another level of analysis. And they are probably the most important because essentially whatever is going to be done is going to be done with them, on them, and against them, and for them. So they are key stakeholders, and I I have to stress that
0: so if, if they are key stakeholders and, and and I think maybe this question might lead to how how did you gather your your data or mm-hmm. how, what met, research methodology did you use and all of you know connections to what your research is about in, mm-hmm. in, in concrete terms so, if citizens are part of stakeholders, so how did you go about, because I know you've done your field research already, mm-hmm. so how did you go about really getting information and data to use, or did, did you consider citizens as part of, in, in, in the stakeholders that, that you involved in your
1: yeah Yeah, um, I, would, I would say that in how I've structured my work, I don't necessarily discuss citizens as stakeholders, but what I do is to represent the views of citizens, or try to get the, my understanding of citizens from the representations by civil society. Because in political science, you would say that civil society is that link between the state and the citizen. And oftentimes, it is civil society's responsibility to carry the concerns of the citizens to the state. Because my work largely is an institutional um, form of analysis, and that's what it does. But I don't lose sight of the fact that there could be a certain sense of elitism if you decide that you you are going to only take the views of civil society and not necessarily citizens so during my field research one of the things that i tried to do was to talk to citizens and also observe a lot and i have some of these views reflected in in in, in my writing as i go on
0: what essentially did you do during your research
1: yeah so the first part is um what the layman would call desktop research. Um, we will call it um, documentary analysis, secondary um, sources of data. So you go online, you go to the library, you go, um, you, you, you search for, for, for news items, you search for articles. You search for videos sometimes, um, sometimes audios. uh, You want to know what is already out there, what is already out there in the media, what is already out there, even in academia. Because first of all, as you know, for your literature review, you have to know what is there so that you establish a gap and say that, okay, this is what has been said about this topic already in the literature, and this is what I want to add. To it. So that was the first part, the second resources. And after the second resources, then I knew that I was confident enough to say that, okay, now I know where the conversation has been generally. So I can go to the field and then find more first hand information. And what I have done or what I did when I went to the field was to also go to the National Archives in Ghana and try to understand the history of citizen identification systems in the country because I believe that there are always legacies starting from colonial times to the early uh, post-independent governments till date, have there been forms of identification systems? Did they work? Did they not work? Why did they work? Why did they not work? How are they affecting present generation of identification um, projects? But then I also did, most importantly, a lot of interviews, where uh, I did interviews with institutions. So I would be interviewing somebody, but not ask the person, but the person's instead of uh, uh, um, the institution. So you are representing the institution. I'm not necessarily interviewing you, Taiwo. You get my point. So I write to an institution and say that, oh, let's say the National Identification Authority, I want to have an interview with you, and they send me to somebody, and I have the interview with the person. And that also brought me a lot of insight, because after going through the secondary sources, you realize that there are certain things that are not clear enough. And then you want to talk to these people to understand, okay, I, I read this year, I saw this year, this other interviewee said this, um, what do you think about it? And I think it's a great source of information, interviews.
0: Interesting. Um, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going to cont- try to see if I can zone in, again, um, mm-hmm. farther into your work. So thinking in terms of sensors and, and election and all of that, I would imagine that identification systems is key, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... So, so thinking from that perspective, what's it, how does identification system help us to plan strategic uh, events like that that are important in governance and that are important in, you know, in even in the sovereignty and self-determination of a country and how it governs itself?
1: Well, it's it's very, very interesting because elections, especially in in, in countries in Africa that you would call new democracies or young democracies, uh, elections are very sensitive in these places. And information on citizens are very, very um, important. I recently had a conversation with somebody who was trying to make the argument that they don't think there's enough information on citizens when it comes to elections in Africa. Then I made the argument that, well... It is actually the most resilient institution when it comes to databases because elections are so sensitive and has so much utility for the government, so much utility for political parties and politicians generally, for civil society, that everybody is dragging everybody to go and register. Unfortunately, it's not the same when it comes to birth registration. It's not the same when it comes to national health insurance. So we sit in a very, very interesting position when it comes to election. But the second challenge for us as countries that um, have boundaries that were imposed on us by colonial powers, is that the question of citizen has still not been resolved. And sometimes, let me explain for somebody who is not familiar with the African um, 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 case, that oftentimes in almost every African country, the border on the east, the west, the north is separating or dividing the same people. So if there are the ever people In eastern Ghana. Same same tribe, same... Yeah, same ethnic group. The same people live on the Togo side of the border. Togo is another country in West Africa. And on the western side, you have the same tribe living... I I don't want to use tribe, ethnicity, living in Ghana. So for the people on the ground, they, they, they don't think that you can restrict them with your understanding of national territory and national boundaries. So they think they can be as fluid as possible, but the state wants to impose itself. The state wants to determine who is a citizen and who is not, because that is when we can say that you can vote, you cannot vote. So elections have become an opportunity for many African governments to settle the question of citizenship, and that is why identification systems come in. Because then, when you have to register to get an ID card, then it means that this is an opportunity for us to exclude people from becoming citizens and from not being citizens a, a, a follow up question
0: to that mm-hmm. would be so what, what do you think are the implication of the of identification system that we currently have in in africa i mean mm-hmm. with the case study of ghana for example Uh, And perhaps maybe you might just want to, you know, cite one or two case studies, Mm -hmm. just for us to have an understanding of the kind of identification system that we have, again, not to reduce it to election, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe reaching out to other areas, but really would be nice to hear what are those identification systems that we have on the continent, and maybe referring to one or two examples.
1: Uh, I probably should have even stated this earlier, that although I say identification systems, my work basically focuses on three types of identification systems. And the first one is a national identification card. This is a project that is going on in Ghana. I think it's also going on in Nigeria. And then it's also going on in Kenya, where the state will take your biometric details and other information, sometimes including your height, sometimes including your (laughs) blood. And even in Kenya, they are trying to think about collecting DNA and all. And this... Is supposed to settle again the question of citizenship because if you have that ghana card as we call it in ghana or i don't know how they call it in nigeria but if you have that citizenship card then that question for you has been settled that means that as a person you can access state services public services public utilities First of all, the other identification project that I'm looking at is a SIM card registration exercise, which is also fascinatingly going on in different African countries, including Nigeria. Again, it's going on in Uganda, it's going on in in Kenya. What is happening here? Simply, we are saying that for you to be able to get a SIM card, a SIM card for you to be able to use your phone, then you have to register with the state. But... All over the world. Okay, I shouldn't say all over the world. But there's a history to this. There's a history to this. In Australia in 1997, they used the argument of security, as you mentioned earlier, the argument of crime, to say that, no, people in this country should not just be given a SIM card. You should not just walk to a store, buy a SIM card, put it in your phone, and be able to use it. We should be able to know who is using the phone by registering the SIM card so that if you have to track the number you know that, oh, this crime was committed by XYZ because XYZ used this phone, and this phone is owned by XYZ. <laughs> the third um, um, registration, um, identification project that I'm looking at is what we call the digital addressing system. So here, instead of having house numbers, what is being done in Ghana is to divide the whole country into five by five meters and give every five by five meters a digital address. So basically, think about it from this perspective: that you go on Google and you want to know a certain location, it gives you longitude and latitude. So what is happening in Ghana is to call, is that they are converting the longitude and the latitude into a uniform system. So that the moment you see that uniform system, you know that, oh, this particular property is in this region, is in this city, is in this town. So these are the the main identification projects that I'm looking at. Uh, So
0: I wonder, in a lot of the African countries, Mm -hmm. especially West Africa, are they are non-citizens? Uh. <laughs> Why why would would you ask that? Or there other the categories. I I mean, I'm just. I mean, and I'm asking asking the qualitative question, of course. But I'm just thinking. But it's it's actually a a very very key question because in Canada, for example, you have citizens, you have those that are on PR, you have students, Mm -hmm. you have uh, uh, non. I mean, international students. You know, those with open work permit and all that. Those those people are going to fall under Mm non-citizens. However, they they are still Within a certain category, and some of them are even taxpayers. Mm-hmm. So, in the context of West Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, and, and the rest, do we have any any sort of way of identifying, you know? <laughs> yeah, Ghana? It's,
1: it's 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 a question that should seem quite strange to somebody who lives in Canada or somebody who lives in the U.S. But in the African experience, it's a very very practical question. And I'll go back to what I was talking earlier about colonial bodies. If every country has borders that divides the same people to its left, to its right, that means that to the people, they are the same. And you cannot use your modern conception of state to restrict them. But the state doesn't care. The state wants to use its modern territory to restrict citizenship. That is the first part. But then again, because these boundaries are so loose, you find people being so fluid coming in living here giving birth and in the long run what you find is that they virtually become citizens so how do you ensure that no not it it doesn't become the case that everybody at all who enters the country can become a citizen how do you ensure that don't forget that especially in places like eastern africa then you have it being more fluid this whole idea of refugees so for them it may not even be a question of just citizenship it's a question of as a refugee, am I recognized? If I'm recognized, the moment I'm recognized, does it debar me from enjoying certain benefits that the state provides? And there is a concrete issue to the extent that sometimes even proving that you're... Because let me use the Ghana example, that before you can, you, can, um, you can get a national ID card, before you can get a national ID card, you have to, sh- you have to prove that you're a citizen about it this way that the national id card is actually supposed to be what proves that you're a citizen but because it is coming late in the day now we want you to bring something else to show that you're a citizen what could this be go and bring your birth um, certificate but in these countries not everybody has a birth certificate how do i prove that i am a citizen you see so these challenges are there where sometimes i was an um, uh, um, an interview of an old man was crying because he had gone to register for a national identification card and he was told that he was not a citizen he could not just believe it because he knew (laughs) that this is just strange but then in Ghana they would say that if you don't have anything to prove that you're a citizen bring two people two respectable people from your community to come and vow and say that yes indeed you are a citizen so there's a way around it but it is a very very important question because for us the citizenship question has not been settled, and people will try to use identification systems to settle these questions. But as to whether it will succeed, I think it's going to be a strange and difficult one, especially as our borders keep being fluid and there are ties on each side of it.
0: Interesting. So, uh, some couple of some couple of things. One uh, that I'm reflecting on is, you know, how. Uh, uh, the the colonial standard or way of looking at things define how we look at things so for example um i don't need an i do not need an official id card to identify that i belong to a certain ethnic group yeah however within the new democratic and you know after the post colonial after the colonial Uh, Regime and all that now that we're in the new government and all that uh, on the continent, I need, so my identification is not based on my language because language is something to show that I belong to these people, to this culture, to this tribe, or to this ethnic group. Um, Parents or heritage ancestries. Even back then, you have a lot of, There are names that we know that it connect to a certain region or you know in in the country, but now all of that do not prove that I belong, that I can be identified. There's some places too where even tribal marks is a way to identify that this people part of a clan. So. in terms of so maybe maybe this this stretching this further would take me my rambling now would take me to my next question, which is around the challenges that you're facing in trying to look at identification system from the perspective of the Western idea, and identification from the perspective of the people and their culture.
1: Yeah. Um, the 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 interesting thing. Would be that when you mentioned tribal marks, and again, it's, it's one. I just want to avoid the use of the word tribe because it comes with a lot of baggage. So we just say, let's say facial marks, mm-hmm. and we could probably think. W- well,
0: there are some people
1: that it was not facial mark; it, they had it on their yeah. So arms let's say bodily, and, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, bodily identification marks. Let's let's say that. And um, when you say that, I th- I think that in my historical chapter is something that I was trying to think through and trying to say that, look, isn't this their own version of an ID card? Absolutely,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So that means that the concept of having an ID so we can then de- identify you as one of us is not necessarily Western.
0: No, it's not. Absolutely, it's not. But the idea of the card itself and the way that information is gathered, the concept of, ident- of identity... The identification system, it's not Western. Mm-hmm. But how that translates right now is Western.
1: Okay, so um, I, if I get you, your question... You think so? Yeah, if I, if I get your question, then there, there is an idea of a certain struggle between the modern conception of the state and the the traditional African conception of the state that I would say in my own ways that there are sub-states within the states in Nigeria, in Ghana, in South Africa. They have their own versions of sovereignty and all of that. Yes, and I agree with you that there's always going to be that tension, that that tension of ethnic allegiances, that tension of saying that, look, um, we are who we are, we know ourselves. But then again, the truth, and I, I, maybe I shouldn't say the truth, I should say the reality is that upon or after colonialism, the state as we have it, Almost everywhere in the world, it's what you would call the, the modern Western state, um, as defined by, let's say, um, should you say, as defined by Max Weber. Um, that idea of a state with certain attributes is not going away. With, with certain ways of working, bureaucracy is not going away. Jurisdiction, territory, um, monopoly on the use of force, they are not going away. So, The question then becomes, do you adjust? Do you stick to your historical conceptions of citizenship? Or you decide to move along with the times. Because if you don't move along with the times, the conception of citizenship has evolved. If you don't move along with the times, it means that you're not going to be a citizen. If you don't have that piece of ID that you think or you say is Western, then you're actually going to lose out on the benefits of being a citizen, even though you are a citizen. I,
0: um, interesting, because because uh, I think this this really this perspective really raises a lot of a uh, lot of tensions, m- lot of tensions and lot of concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I, I I don't think this is the place to unpack <laughs> it. Uh, but but my and and thanks thanks for for bringing this out mm. because that's still goes back to my my question around what are the challenges that you did face trying to do this? Mm -hmm. And an example would be the the old man that came and said, I am a citizen of this country even though i didn't have a birth certificate perhaps at the eight, at the time when he was born there was nothing like even that. today people are struggling to get yeah, birth, birth certificate but i speak this language i have my house in this space in this place i know three five seven people that are from this place that i'm i'm actually their elder the elder of this clan or this ethnic group um i'm this and that do all of that for me, all of that. For him, rather, all of that is a means to identify him. When, but when he was born, perhaps there was nothing like identification. Um, there was nothing like birth certificates. So, my question essentially is this: that what are the challenges that you find in working, uh, in thinking around identification system? Perhaps from the Western perspective, a concept of gathering identification. Uh, of gathering information that makes up the identification system itself, mm-hmm. uh, for you it to have a card, for example, versus what the um, the older man, like you mentioned, his own idea and his, you know, what it means to be identified at a, as a part of this country. Do you find that it, as that what are the challenges that you need yeah, from, I, from I, that perspective?
1: I, I think that um, it is rather unfortunate for somebody who believes that he's a citizen or she's a citizen to be told that, no, you cannot get this identification card because we don't think you're a citizen because you didn't bring um, an evidence. You didn't bring two people to vouch for you. It is sad. It is disappointing. But I would say that it is one of the things that my work tries to think through. And for me, The whole idea of exclusion and inclusion is key. That everything that I'm looking at, when it is policy, when it is implementation, when it is even publicity, I want to understand how these stakeholders are thinking about issues of inclusion and exclusion. Because it is not just a card. The most important thing is that this card is going to give you access to the state. This card is going to give you access to public utilities, public services, without this card, there's going to be a lot of trouble for you. So for my work, I always try to think that the, the stakeholders should be thinking this way. Are they doing that or not?
0: Is, is there a possibility where we can have two systems of identification working hand in hand together the traditional and the modern if if we want to call it that but is there a way where we can have to rather than say where it has to be this is there a way where we can try to think around identification system from the perspective of the people you know and whatever that means and from the perspective of the state and see and maybe there are case studies of countries where does that has happened before it, it would be nice too um yeah. I think
1: it's, it's, it's the state that probably has to settle for a middle ground and find other avenues to bring people into its system. Because the truth is, these systems are transnational. So even if within your state, you feel that, oh, let's say, ethnically, I belong. So that should be enough. What about the fact? That let's say your, your, your SIM registration system or your national identification system is tied to other countries. It's tied to other um, systems. So let's take the example of Ghana's national identification card. On this same card is a West African passport. What does this mean? A COAS passport. That means that it's going to give you access to other 14 or so countries. So... Do you decide to be a part of this system? Or you choose to be in the, let's say, traditional conception of of identity. In the end, it may not be fair. It may not sound fair. But the reality is, this is where the world has gotten through. But it is a responsibility of civil society. It is a responsibility of citizens. It is a responsibility of the state. To make sure that whatever their conception of identification is, they rope in. Almost all citizens who are qualified.
0: So, so that that brings me to uh, another question uh, around sensitization and and how this how this translates to the people what's the process is there anything that you know that will make citizens know what is the importance of this and of course if we're, th- we're thinking about uh, identification system from the western perspective mm-hmm. uh do they are there what are the ways in which people have been sensitized to understanding identification system their you know importance their relevance and and and, and stuff like that yeah, so
1: generally um, the, f- the forms of publicity have rather been um, insular or discrete, that each project has its own um, I- I identific- um, no, publicity campaign. And I would probably use the example of um, the SIM registration exercise. In Ghana, the SIM card registration exercise is being led by the National Communications authority and in my interviews with them i realized that they were they were partnering with the information services department in ghana and they were going from area to area to town to town trying to get people to understand the essence of having your sim card registered and the value of it and sometimes you read get to understand some of the interactions that these people have when the state authorities come to them with these forms of publicity, right? And you get to understand that, on the ground, how the policy has been structured at the top is not necessarily what is pertaining. In Ghana's SIM card registration regulations, citizens are not supposed to be charged for their SIM card to be registered. You don't have to pay for it in their publicity, they realize that they'll go to places and people will be complaining that we are actually being charged for this. And the moment there's that cost element, it deepens the possibility of exclusion. So publicity is good. But the extent to which we would make sure that, um, it's one of the things that I'm finding, that you, you, you don't wait for things to happen before you have a certain approach to publicity. So that you have to emphasize as much as possible. You have to go to as broad, uh, in in terms of breadth, you have to go to many places to ensure that people actually understand what is going to happen before it starts. Because I'm finding a lot of scenarios where people don't necessarily understand and then the project starts and they start complaining and then we, we have a different approach to publicity. So it is one of the things that I find that if you want to roll out policy, then you have to make sure that um, um, the publicity is way ahead of it and it's comprehensive enough.
0: Uh, Another question I'm going to raise. and again, maybe some of these questions, maybe they do not concern your work, that's fine, and we can, we can just, um, you know, fast forward and talk about other things. But I'm thinking about ethics around data gathering and people's mm. information. Uh, a key thing that is going on in Europe now, and, and perhaps some part of North America, is the whole idea of confidentiality to people's, in, in, you know, information and all of that. Uh, and I understand that when gathering information, personal information, because that goes into identification systems yeah. and all the product that comes out of that, uh, is there any thinking around how to protect people from 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 theft of identity, from you know from hacking and hijacking people, you know different things like that. Because even in Nigeria right now, we have the BVN. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which is which has to do with the bank verification number, mm-hmm. and they actually give you a card, you know. So again, that's part of identification system. Perhaps not within the context of sensors and all of that, but but the the CBN, which is one of those championing that cause, mm-hmm. you know, keeps talking about the benefits of having your BVN. And I understand that on the continent, we emphasize what people can get out of it versus talking about the complete. I've never had a conversation around we're going to get your information and what is going to happen to your information, mm. you know? So what's the ethics around data gathering and, and, and all of that?
1: Yeah, um, I think for, for for civil society organizations, issues of, of privacy um, are very, very important in how they talk about identification systems with the state and with um, private corporations. Um, I would say that if you go to Kenya, their version of a national identification project is what they call the Huduma number. And if you go to um, the Kenyan court, one ruling that, is, that has been recently given is that that project should not be obligatory. And the civil society organization that took that matter to court was simply arguing that, look, we don't have a data protection law in this country. If you don't have a data protection law, you cannot collect the biometrics of citizens. So the court said, till we have that, then what you can do is to make it only voluntary and make sure that you don't include or exclude any citizen who does not register or registers. That it should be up to the citizen to register. But if he or she fails, the person should not be punished by the state for it until you have a data protection law. And this reflects in the case of Ghana. The funny part is it is these same issues to do with privacy, to do with identity theft that also inform the projects. So, same registration. One of the logics in Ghana would be that oh, people have been calling us, anonymous calls, insulting us, trying to defraud us. So let's have sim registration so that we can track the criminal. So you see, without it, we think that we are losing something. With it, we also see it as our information is really somewhere that could be exploited. And it is always going to be a concern that everywhere in the world, people would have to think about.
0: So... uh do you have uh, laws around information uh, around privacy data collection in Ghana?
1: Yeah, so in Ghana there's a data protection law. Sorry, data protection law yeah, that's yeah, it. In 2012. Yeah. 2012 yeah. data protection law. And even in the SIM card registration regulations there are laws about how to access the information, how to share the information, how to use the information, how to store the information interesting yeah
0: well um we're coming to the end of the conversation it's, it's really raising a lot of critical ideas and 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 a lot of concerns uh in in different levels uh, one question that i'd love to ask uh, before before um we, we we go would be uh so what next in your research what what are you planning to do next mm-hmm. what are you planning to do with your findings with your uh when you get to have your findings you know and how how is there a way that that could affect Canada, you know, or, <laughs> or other part of the world,
1: um, um, you know? If if uh, starting from the last the the last part, if um you you have been paying attention to Canadian immigration yeah, policies have, yeah. and all, um one interesting thing is that now they are asking for biometrics from a lot more people than they used to. Um, as a as a Ghanaian, initially you were not supposed to give your biometrics, but now you are being asked to give your biometrics. I know it's different in the case of of, of of Nigeria. And even when you are renewing from here, you're supposed to give your biometrics. So I just want to say that these systems are linked. And how do I trust? I recently saw um a, a note, a note in I think is it the Canadian High Commission in Ghana? Like, this is an internal discussion about how they cannot trust the documents that people bring to their high commission for visa processing. That are we sure that this birth certificate that this person is bringing, this ID that this person is bringing is actually valid, such that we can be confident enough to make our immigration decision whether to give the person a visa or not based on that. So you may think that this is going on in Ghana, but if... These ID cards or ID systems in Ghana are not valid. And Canada is making decisions based on them. Do they affect you in Victoria or not? You have to think about that.
0: Interesting. Uh, uh, another quick question that kind of came to my mind when um, I said we're leaving. Um, you seem to put a lot of responsibility on civil societies. Mm-hmm. I wonder if those, you know, the responsibility we're putting on them, if they understand that it's their responsibility or are there ways where, cause for example, um, birth certificate, it is not a responsibility of a civil society to provide birth certificate. Mm-hmm. Rather the government can and should be able to pro- to create a system, uh, you know, straightforward system where people can actually, you know, one time click or an office go there and get birth certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, or even make it available in the hospital. I mean, whatever. I'm just saying different things now. So, at what point does the work of a civil society ends, and as what at what point does the state take it on, and at what point do we have civil society facilitating responsibility and things you know that are meant to be done? So that because uh, it seems that a lot of, lot of. It seems that we're putting it, the stop at the you know the doorstep of civil society, um, and, I, and I
1: wonder. I I would I would rather say that if if civil society is probably um, coming across as important um, in this conversation. Yes, it is. Then it's mainly because it's mainly because we have a a, a, a kind of state. When I say we, um, in this particular case, Ghana, but I, I I'm sure that this may apply in other. African um, countries that you, you don't have you don't have democracies that are so strong that you find citizens themselves holding the state accountable and oftentimes if you want to properly hold the state accountable it seems to be this civil society you can't even trust them but then you can't also challenge their capacity in terms of whether they are strong as citizens or not you cannot challenge that but I would say that in my work I am thinking that I'm going to place more emphasis on the state. As I said earlier, it is your responsibility to think about these issues as to who gets included, who gets excluded. excluded. Because in fact, the moment you decide not to give a card to somebody, not to register somebody, then you're also deciding that this person is not a citizen. And if you decide that this person is not a citizen, then this person is going to lose out on public goods, public utilities, public services. So I would say that... We should, we should, the back should stop with the state. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and,
0: and my final question would mm-hmm. be this. It, what are the ways that you think that our state, when I say our, I mean, states in uh, developing countries and, uh, and all that, how can they create a system that can be trusted? Because I think that's very important. If there are conversations around, hey, we can trust these documents, we can trust these, you know, their ways of doing things and uh, immigration policies and all that are made based on that. What what systems do we have? <laughs> the, and why, what has come to, you know, the, the, how can the, we make that happen to be
1: trusted? The interesting parts about all of these things is that the more you call for trust, the more the response would be in further forms of identification. <laughs> so you see that they will tell you that the card is just to identify you. But if you give us your biometrics, if you give us your, your fingerprints, if you allow us to scan your iris, then we are pretty sure that we can distinguish you from another person. So it is the fascinating part of it that the more you think that, oh, let's make sure that we build a system that is trustworthy, the more it, it it seems people use that as an excuse for further um, um, um. Projects in terms of identification
0: systems. Interesting. Well, for over narrow uh, we're close to now. We've been talking with Smith, uh, and his research is really interesting around identification system, particularly con- uh, exploring the connection between identification system and national development. It's good to talk to you, uh, Smith, and I'm wishing you all the best in as you write and think through your work.
1: Yeah, it was it was a lovely Thank you so much. conversation. This was great. All Thanks. Right. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV 101.9 FM. For interviewees' contact information or to listen to this episode again, visit cfuvpodcast.com. You can also subscribe, read, or review Beyond the Jargon and other CFUV
1: podcasts uh, wherever you get your podcasts.